Welcome back to Super Sentai Buddies. This is the movie episode of The Spider-Man Who Loved Me, a podcast dedicated to the Toei production of Spider-Man. Every week we watch an episode of the show and we share our thoughts with you, the listener. My name is producer Mark. With me, as always, is my co-host and buddy Brian. Brian, how you doing today? I have a head cold, so not great. <laughs> Apologies in advance, listener. I will do my best to edit out all of the sniffles. But if you detect something a little off in Brian's usually smooth, radio-ready baritone, that is why. Is that, is that what we're going with? All right. That was off the top of my head. I didn't really know where I was going when not, I started the I'm sentence. not sure I like it, but, you know, we're pot committed, so let's go. All right. We have, before we get into this episode, Brian, we have a special guest with us this is the first time we've had a non-mark or brian on the spider-man who loves me oh interesting who have we got <laughs> we've got matt J, renowned host of the super sentai brothers <laughs> <laughs> hey guys how you doing what is your experience with the uh, super sentai franchise <laughs> well let me tell you i um i watched the power rangers when i was a kid and okay. then i found out that super sentai exists and i thought well that would be a lark to watch some sure. of that, just to sort of see what it's like to see, you know, the Super Sentai through, uh, or see the Power Rangers through sort of a funhouse mirror. So I got real into it for a while, and then I convinced <laughs> my brother to do a podcast with me. <laughs> I, think, was... I, I think it was mostly so I would stop clogging up our daily email thread with just whatever Sentai I'd watched the night before. That was a fun window of time, though, because for several months, our daily email thread just had you explaining an episode of the Super Sentai to us. Oh, and at the time, I was not just watching a series straight through. I was just like right. on YouTube bouncing around watching an episode here or there of whatever <laughs> I could dig up. So not only did you not have any context for what I was watching, I could not provide any context for what I was watching. I was like, okay, here's episode three of Sun Vulcan. You're never going to believe this. <laughs> and five years later, you're still talking about Super Sentai. Yes, although I, I realized, I was thinking about the, the progression of the Super Sentai Brothers and the, the naming uh, convention of our seasons, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, we've always done um, a a sort of James Bond like play on words title. For right. we had the the uh, Live and Let Die Ranger up through currently uh, licensed to Car Ranger. Now here's the issue: it's either next year or the year after that. If we get that far, the 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 title of that show is Mega Ranger. And I have okay. really put some thought into it, and the only thing that works is uh, this, the spy who loved Mega Ranger, and that's going to come into <laughs> conflict with this uh, Super Sentai Buddies. Have you already done an On Her Mega Ranger's Secret Service? Yeah, no. that was Magi Ranger. Yeah, that right? has to be saved for Magi Ranger, because On Her oh. Magi Ranger's Secret Service is gotcha. so perfect. Okay. <laughs> Well, maybe. I mean, we're only doing 10 episodes a year, but maybe we'll be finished with the Spider-Man Who Loves Me by then. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Never we say Mega Ranger again? Ooh, I mean, we'll be seeing it every week, Brian. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but you've done more than two episodes of You Only Live Man twice, so. That's true, but, but uh, Never Say Never Again is non-canonical. 
Yeah, I I feel like it's the better Thunderball. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. We're, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen it yet, and I am waiting to see it until we watch it for Spectre. Yeah, because somehow your throwaway gag of James Bond titled Super Sentai Podcast series has led you to an entirely separate podcast where you actually watch James Bond movies. Yeah, uh, which is really fun, but uh, a grueling experience. <laughs> Because, you know, we do an hour here, we do an hour long show about a half hour long episode. Uh, and those James Bond movies are pretty long. So episodes of Spectre, if you haven't tuned in, they are very fun and I recommend it. Um, but like, man, I needed to get a more comfortable chair is what I'm saying. <laughs> because by the end of like three plus hours of recording, it is uh, it's not the best scene. So today, guys, we are watching the movie episode of spider-man which is disappointingly just named spider-man just just so you know matt spider-man the movie happens between episode 10 and 11 of the series and so the movie is just called spider-man but episode 10 was called to the flaming hell see the tears of the snake woman and 11 (laughs) is professor monsters ultra poisoning so so we're we're lacking an inventive title this week. Well, that is a shame, but I'm glad to be here for such a momentous cinematic experience. <laughs> oh yes. There Yes, this this is definitely something that did happen. Way back in season 1 of this podcast, one of the things that surprised me most to learn about the Super Sentai programs is when you, Matt, explained to me that every series has a movie that gets a cinematic release, but it's just a regular episode. It's 23 minutes long and it falls somewhere within the continuity of the season, usually like front third. Yeah, I think they normally get a bigger budget. And what's weird is that for a lot of the series, I haven't seen the movie Because when Shout Factory got the rights to the Super Sentai TV shows to distribute them in the U.S., Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, because they were a quote-unquote movie, they did not get the rights to those. Those are like movie rights and not TV rights. So if you buy the the DVD box set of Die Ranger, it has every episode of Die Ranger, but it doesn't have the Die Ranger movie, which is a shame. Because the the Die Ranger movie is great. (laughs) so this one definitely has we'll talk about it in a minute a higher production value it's still real campy right but there's a few things we'll talk about when we get into it that i noticed a peek on but before we do that matt and brian shining in the heavens there are five stars would you guys like to hear the first star of the week mark i would love to yep so tomorrow Ivy and I are headed out to the closest thing that we have to a local comic shop. We live rurally, so it's like a 28-mile drive to get to a comic shop. Mm -hmm. But we're doing it because Ivy is setting up her own pool box. Ooh. Mm. I can't tell you how delighted this makes me. Has she decided what she wants to subscribe to? So there's a couple of things. She's very into the DC superhero girls. Okay. They don't have, like, a recurring monthly but a few times a year, they drop a graphic novel. So that's in there. There's also, there's a bunch of graphic novels for kids. I'm sure you guys are aware of this. Like the 
the only sector in comic book reading that is experiencing legitimate growth is kids and teenagers comics. It's exploding. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like kids and teenagers, like journal comics sort of things. Yeah. Yeah, they're so there's, massive. So there's stuff like Hexvet that Ivy really likes that's a... That one may have a weekly pool. I can't remember. There's the Tea Dragon Society. So there's all of these very popular sort of grade school and preteen books that she'll be pooling. And then she's going to, I believe, regularly pool Sonic as her monthly. Okay. Man, I remember reading Sonic the Hedgehog comics when I was a kid. Is that still published by Archie? Uh, I think IDW has it presently, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And she just tried out, she got the first two issues and really enjoyed, there's a new Care Bears title. I think it's only slated for 12 issues, but she's going to be reading that. Is is uh, Care Bears a property that is currently being developed, like, in TV or movies? This is something, Here's I, a thing. I, I do not have my finger on the pulse of uh, Care Bear. Uh, the upcoming advents in Care Bear technology. For very obvious reasons, you are probably not aware of this, but Care Bears has almost never been out of production. Really? There has been a Care Bears franchise with little drop, basically tracking back to the ones we watched when we were kids. I think the biggest gap was between the ones that we watched, and then it kind of had a little bit of a breather. But yeah, there's been three or four Care Bears series, honestly, of pretty decent quality. Now, has there and ever been a Gummy Bears revival? Sadly, no, at least not that I'm aware of. But yeah, Care Bears is a going concern, and Ivy loves every iteration, including the ones we watched as children. She's She loves the property. So right on. The comic book, I think, is plot hooked to the current cartoon that's running which is pretty cool anyway that's it that's, that's really all i had to say is my kids opening up a pool box and i could not be that is very exciting it. matt what is the second star of the week tabletop role-playing games i love them you love them everybody loves them or ought to they're very popular right now they are they're having a real cultural minute it's nice they are i was listening to a podcast recently actually where they were talking to someone who was talking to somebody who was involved in the writing of some D&D books, and while they declined to give any sort of hard numbers, they said that 5th edition is now the highest selling edition of D&D, like of all time. Wow. Nice. Um, which is wild, considering that 5th edition is only a few years old, and right. a bunch of the other editions were around for a really long time. Yeah. Especially well, and, AD&D and 2nd Ed. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that 4th edition had 753 books... Is that a real number? Because I would believe that. <laughs> it's it's not, but they had, it was, they had four player manuals. Well, you needed to get all of the new, uh, all the new base classes with the new power uh. types and archetypes. <laughs> uh. you, need, you needed an arcane defender. You needed a divine defender. You needed a martial defender. You needed a, <laughs> true. You needed a nature-based defender. You probably needed a psionic <laughs> defender. Yeah, and then I don't you know. Needed all those for strikers and controllers, yeah. and you know, and then you needed at least two splats for every one of those. Yeah, I don't know what's worse—the fact that they made all of those books, or the fact that I own all of those books. Not all of them, <laughs> but 
a number of them. Those books were coming out right when, and Matt, I know this is a difficult subject for you, but right when uh, Borders bookstores were closing? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, those books were coming out while I was working at Borders, and I was getting a uh, discount because I worked at Borders. I bought, I, I bought a lot of those books for myself, and I also had sort of like a running... Uh, just a request from a few friends of mine, like, hey, when the new D&D book comes in, buy it for me and I'll pay you back. Don't feel bad about uh, admitting the abuse of my employee privilege there because that company doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but that's that's actually not the game I'm talking about. I'm talking about a, a variant on 5th uh, Ed D&D. Uh, it was, I think there was a like a Kickstarter project for it. Basically, they took 5th edition D&D, they stripped away all the fantasy stuff, and they replaced it with, like, some home-brewed sci-fi stuff. It's called Hyperlanes, and it's really fun. Because what the, the thing that I find so fun about it, I've only played a few sessions, but A, I think 5th ed D&D is a really good system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got, like, one or two bits that I'm sure are flawed, but for the most part, I think it's, like, a really streamlined and easy-to-approach system. But what is great about it is that like D&D as a game setting does a great thing where like there are bits of it that are very specific to Dungeons and Dragons, right? But you could use the D&D book to run a fantasy like a fantasy game of basically any setting. You know, like it doesn't have to be, you know, Greyhawk or Neverwinter or whatever. You can just say, "Okay, here's a fantasy game, we're using D&D." I feel like a lot of sci-fi games don't manage that trick where they are easily enough played outside the trappings of whatever, like, intellectually property they're attached to. So, like, you Mm -hmm. can't play Star Wars outside of it being Star Wars because everything about it is attached to it being Star Wars. And, like, if there is a Star Trek game, you cannot play it without it being Star Trek. Even uh, Starfinder, which is a very similar sort of idea where they, the people who made Pathfinder made a space game. It's kind of locked into its own world. You know, uh, all the Warhammer 40 K stuff is very locked into its own world. This game is like, it gives you stuff that you can work off if you don't want to make your own world, but it's Mm -hmm. also generic enough that you can just say like, Hey, you know, space, here you go. Here's some space. You already know how to play D and D. Just replace swords with lasers, and you're good to go. It's an extremely fun game. That's good to hear. Uh, anyway, Mark, what is our third star of the week? Okay, star number three is a board game, card-based board game, whatever. I don't understand all of the nuances of board game anymore. There's too many. I'm not complaining about that. But it's very hard to tell the difference between a dice game, a card game, a board game, or some weird hybrid between those three. Well, right, dice like, game if, has dice. Like, what if it's all made out of, like, tiles, but it's not really, like, there's no board, but you sort of construct a board? Like, is that, Carcassonne a board game, or is that a tile game? So that is sort of what we're talking about here, because star number three is Seventh Continent. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with this game. Uh, it, I am basically not familiar with it at all. I am familiar it, that you are playing it. That is, it was the one of, of those. It was one of those big deal board game kickstarters a few years ago that seemed that we have one every month now. Right. 
but sure, it's sure. widely recognized, I think, as one of the better new board games. It's highly ranked on basically all of the popular board game forums. I don't know why I'm saying it generically as if I don't want to plug the <laughs> board game websites. So it's a, basically it is a procedurally generated RPG in a box. Oh. So it's all tile driven, but the tiles are randomized in a very clever way and they shift around as you explore a mysterious continent. And it's multiplayer, but it's also completely playable single player and works from what I have seen extraordinarily well as a single player board game, which is an unusual thing. Okay. I know there's uh that's something that I feel like people have been making uh more of a priority recently. Like I know uh I could sit down and play Root by myself because Yeah, right? Because like I can just play against like the game has sort of like an automated version of itself that I can play right. against. Yeah, years ago when I bought Agricola, I did the same thing where <laughs> you're 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 basically farming against a a point structure. Well, that's the heart of Seventh Continent is you have you were an explorer who visited effectively Australia. Okay, a mysterious unknown continent. Right. In this sort of heart of the pulp adventure era. Uh-huh. And you came back home, you realized you were cursed, and so you have to go back to the continent to try to break the curse before you die. And it has a really clever engine that's entirely driven off of these tiled cards. The island is huge. There's four or five different curses you can play, so it has, you know, some replayability. But it, it's wild to play a procedurally generated tabletop game. And my wife and I have been playing it together. It's a phenomenally good two-player experience. It's clever. It's challenging. The narrative is just strong enough that it's a legitimately compelling and at times tense experience. And we've been playing it an hour or two a night for like three weeks. We're 20 plus hours into this game. So are you, are you 20 plus hours into... Like opening this box and playing the game, or are you twenty plus hours into one instance of the game? Yeah, we are still working on the very first curse. Wow, I know it's. I'm I'm saying twenty plus. I would probably estimate we're closer to thirty. Is this the sort of game where you need to have like a dedicated room in your house with a table you don't use for anything else? No, and that's the most masterful thing of the many things that this game does extraordinarily well. This game is great in in ways that would be take too long to explain because we're already pushing 20 minutes on this opening segment. But because the game itself is procedurally generated, the the only thing you really need to keep track of when you're done is the singular tile that you are standing on. So the idea is the continent is mysterious and parts of it shift and rearrange when you sleep. Okay. So when you finish a play session, now because of the, the way the game works, you always, you will always recreate the same kind of sections of the continent. So when you're exploring a particular island because the game is clever and it tells you the right way to arrange things. You'll always rebuild the same continent, but the way you explore it will be different. You'll find different obstacles. You'll encounter different objects. So when you finish a session and the game recommends an hour or two at a time, 
you save the game is how it describes it. And there's a very clever way of pulling out the one tile that you are standing on and they give you a couple of little inserts that you stick in between everything in your hand, your item pouch to track it. And there's just you just stack up all the cards in a specific order, including the one tile that you are on and you put everything else away like you're done with the game. And then when you restart the game, you just get out this one little stack of cards. And as you lay them down, it recreates the game where you left it off, including the tile you were standing on. And the island has rearranged while you slept. And now you're just exploring again. It's incredible. It saves and packs away. But when you bring it out, you are still playing exactly the same game. I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. I like that a lot. Yeah, I would strongly, even as a single player experience, I would really strongly recommend it. But especially as it can play up to four players. But from what I read and it, from my personal experience backs this up, it is really stellar as a two player game. That seems to be just the ideal balance of it. Anyway, that's it for Seventh Continent. Brian, what is star number four this week? Star number four is is something that appears on our normal podcast a lot. It's time to talk about Riverdale. Man, it is back into Riverdale season, and three of the four panelists on Mount Olympus really enjoy this show. It's because it's the greatest television show that has ever existed. Well, you, um, you, uh, you two and Lucas are huge fans. <laughs> uh, so bit of background uh as this is oddly enough the second mention of archie uh on the podcast today yeah so riverdale of course it's never been more relevant brian it that's true (laughs) riverdale of course is uh following you know archie comics in a uh sort of weird twisted um what if archie was dark and gritty but the show is so painfully aware of that that it it kind of comes off as a satire of that entire genre. It is. It's gumshoe detective mixed with soap opera by way of the sort of 2000s era grim and gritty reboot, but deeply self-aware and sort of making fun of itself for being that at all times. Yes. Okay, so now I've never seen Riverdale. My this It sounds like you're saying it's what if Archie but grim and gritty. My understanding of it was, what if Archie but horny? It's that, that too. too. Okay. It's a CW yeah. program. Yeah, CW yeah. programs oh, okay. are all horny all the time. Well, right. there we go then. Yeah. But, so, last season, Luke Perry died in real life. And right. uh, Luke Perry played Archie's father on the show, Fred Andrews. And the show... Very, very wisely, because he died towards the end of the season, the show very, very wisely decided to not even deal with it at all for the rest of that season, because it just, they would have done it very, very badly. Like, it, it, it would have been weird and bad and just everything possible could go wrong with trying to portray that character's death during the season to cover up for the fact that he died in real life and Riverdale is also a program that you would look at it and decide there is probably no way that this particular program is going to be able to do this well just because it will dial itself up to 11 and then and then we're just going to have a really really weird 
disharmony between, oh, this character has died, but yeah. this actual actor has actually died, and so it feels weird and gross. Yeah, it's a program that lives in camp, that revels in camp. Right. And it is hard to imagine it approaching a deadly serious real-life topic, because it's just camp. It's what it does. Right. right. So that was the backdrop against, I wonder how this is going to go. I will just lead off this segment by indicating they found some way to knock this thing out of the park. They nailed it. I it It is probably going to be, like, the new standard for how do you go about this thing if, like, a beloved actor on your show has actually died in real life. Really? It, it, it's, yeah. It's amazingly touching and thoughtful, and it really highlights, like, it, it it all revolves around this Fred Andrews guy. He was a great guy that everyone loved. It, I mean, you you end up with a scene of you know Archie driving the casket home, met by the entire town of people to talk about how beloved Fred Andrews was. It 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 doesn't lean two hundred percent into the Riverdale ofness of it all. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's but it still fits moments within the universe. It, it feels like an episode of the show. It does. Um, I mean, I didn't even notice that uh, Shannon Doherty was there somehow because my mind didn't like process it. And it it just works in a way that I would not have thought possible, and definitely didn't think this show, for all its campy goofiness, could have actually pulled off. Uh, Is, I mean, mark it. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Is Shannon yep. Doherty in Riverdale? Regularly? No, absolutely okay. not. Nope. Zero. She was a zero percent guest, guest star character that week. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I were, we've talked about this before. I'm a guy who cries fairly easily at this yeah. stage in my life. Yeah, yeah. But if I were to list off the top 100 television shows that might make me cry, I don't think Riverdale would have cracked that <laughs> list. Right. Unless, unless you had very specifically pointed out cried because i am laughing so hard because archie just got mauled by a bear <laughs> yeah that's true i may have cried tears of hilarious joy when archie got mauled by a bear in the canadian wilderness <laughs> which is absolutely a thing that happened <laughs> so when you hear remember how hilarious it was that time archie got mauled by a bear you can understand why we thought that perhaps they would not be up to the task of, yeah no uh, i get it now yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was shortly after Archie escaped Juvenile Delinquency Fight Club. Yes, yes. Well, and all of that was because he had spent the previous season trying to make his bones with yeah. uh, mob with boss Hiram Lodge. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you know, Hiram had to take some people out because he was going to otherwise get taken out by Papa Poutine. So, so you name. can. You can understand how we thought that maybe this show would lack the nuance and subtlety to be able to put together a heartwarming episode that, I will be honest, did make me cry while watching it. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, so I, I follow you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, like, everything up until the, from the point where Archie receives the phone call telling him that his father was killed in a hit and run to the funeral. That's all just great. Five seconds before that, 
Cheryl Blossom is talking to the corpse of her dead brother that she has from the previous season. So it's not like the Riverdale-ness of it all isn't actively going on. To be clear, she's not hallucinating. She's not, like, visiting him at the graveside. She's not praying to talk to her brother in heaven. No, an evil cult. She recovered his literal corpse. Well, that's because an evil cult last year dug up that (laughs) literal corpse. Is it preserved in any way? It seems to be preserved enough, I guess. I'm sure we're going to learn much more about that as this season goes on. But that to be said, Riverdale hit it out of the park celebrating uh, Luke Perry. And I just yeah. just well, really had to bring lovely. that home. It is still the greatest show ever created. Would you guys like to know what Star 5 is so we can get out of this never-ending segment? Yeah, yes. Sure. I mean, are we are we covering up for the fact that this episode is going to be 90% fights? Yeah. This is not a long episode at all. No. Okay. Anyway. All right. I mean, you say we're escaping the five stars, Mark. It's been five years. I'm never escaping the five stars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, star number five is this week's star number five Iron Frenzy. Which is, I'm sure, a meaningless thing to literally everybody in the audience, except maybe Alex, who I believe also grew up in an evangelical youth group and knew about Christian rock. So, Alex, if you're listening, the star's for you. Well, also, uh, first fan Aaron Eller. That's true. (laughs) So, Who will hear about this two years from now. Sure. I became a ska kid in 1996. I mean, you when... say that, Mark. I think that you were always a ska kid and you discovered it in 1996. That's, that's, that is accurate. That is accurate. Uh, when we were in college, Dave used to jokingly call me the last rude boy. Uh, he still does. We were talking about it three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> so the first ska show I ever saw was a band called Five Iron Frenzy. And I saw the show and immediately went back to the merch table and bought their first album on cassette tape. And they have been my favorite band ever since. And yesterday, on my actual birthday, they played a show in Philadelphia, which is like two hours from me. Nice. It was amazing. My favorite band played a show on my birthday that I could drive to. No problem. It was a great show. It was in the basement of the First Unitarian Church in Philly, which is actually something of a well-known East Coast punk venue. Right on. Sure. The First I mean, you know, you guys know Unitarians. They're a very loosey-goosey denomination. Yeah, they yeah. They love yeah. punk. And they just have <laughs> a cool like it, when you go into the show, it looks like you're going to a show at the 1950s Ice Cream Social. Okay. That is the sort of room it is. They've just, this church is, it's like, it is legitimately the first Unitarian church in America. Like, it's it's oh, the oh, first wow. one. I was right. going to say, if we're going to talk too much more about, like, the 1950s ice cream social, I feel like we're looping right back around to Archie Comics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's this real great venue. It's got good sound. It's a smallish room, which I love for a punk show. The stage is pretty low, so it's a real intimate thing. Uh, but it was Five Iron Frenzy. The like their supporting act was Mustard Plug. Okay. Oh, I know Mustard Plug. Mustard a a interview with Mustard Plug was the backup to a comic book I bought one time that was like a it was a comic book about penguins. ska penguin superheroes. Yeah. 
Anyway, we, that's just a weird When we aside. first met, my freshman year, Dave was very excited because I had a mustard plug CD, and he was like, hey, now I know what mustard plug is. <laughs> it was on the back of this comic book Matt and I had. Anyway, so they were the supporting act. They're another ska band that's been around for 20-some years. And the opener, this is really where the fun of the story is. The opener was a band called Mephiscopheles. Okay. Which not only is the perfect example of a ska band name. If you wanted to 100%. understand how ska names their bands, Mephiscopheles, perfect. But Mephiscopheles is, by their own admission, I've seen them a couple of times, and they always start out by the lead singer gets up on stage, growls a little bit, and says, we are the black sheep of every music scene. <laughs> okay. And that's kind of, that's the badge they wear. And they like to build themselves as a satanic ska band. <laughs> I can see in how they're not Unitarian really welcome. Church. I can see how they're not really welcome in either like the the other Satan bands or the other ska bands right? uh, territories. Uh, but it, it they kind of you know it's a bit theatric. It's a little bit metal in that regard, sure. right? Yeah. But they definitely like they literally sing songs about Satan. That's a thing that they do, and this is fun because if you know anything about Five Iron Frenzy, they're a Jesus-related ska band. They got their start in the Christian scene. Uh, and while they have definitely kind of matured in the sort of topics they tackle, they still sing songs about Jesus sometimes. So that's a, that's a real interesting double bill right there. That's what I'm building to. They put together, they did just a couple of shows together, but they put together this beautiful tour poster that is called the Heaven and Hell Tour. And the top <laughs> is this very kind of beautific uh light blue angel winged scene depicting stuff familiar from five iron frenzy's album art and things like that in the bottom is this dark red kind of hellacious devil scene depicting imagery familiar to mephiscopheles uh albums and things like that and then there's a little little mustard plug kind of purgatory in the middle (laughs) but it's this gorgeous poster and is meaningful only to a very narrow band of music fans. But within that band, it is just the greatest joke on a poster. It's wonderful. I love everything about that story. Yeah, it's per- it was a great show. Everyone, the bands were fantastic. The crowd was real into it. I, uh, I'm getting too old to be in the pit, you guys. I'm just, I'm so sore today. I don't <laughs> even want to move. But as I've mentioned before, punk was really born in the 70s. It was born with the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Clash, right? right? And it had its heyday really and truly in the 80s with the, with the punks and the skinheads and like the time where it was sort of a political movement as well as a music movement. Mm-hmm. So by now, like the young people at a punk show are well into their 30s. Uh-huh. So the scene is a bunch of kind of middle-aged guys and gals basically like wearing their punk cosplay on the weekend while they're taking a break from their day job (laughs) and like they're in the pit but they're all real worried about their knees oh yeah that is absolutely it anyway that is that is it for the five stars guys i think it's time we talk about this episode we're gonna take a break we're gonna watch spider-man the movie which was written by uh susumu takaku 
and was released on July 22nd, 1978. Wow. We will be right back. Change the apart And we are back. Let's break format a little. And instead of going to Brian, Matt, how did you find this episode? What do you think? Well, okay. So I have a real question for you guys because I have seen... <laughs> I have not seen all of this series before, right? I, as, as I uh-huh. said, when I was first getting into Tokusatsu shows, I sort of bounced around a little bit. And yep. actually, for a little bit, this whole series was streaming on, like, Marvel.com. Yeah, um, that's right. And so I watched the first maybe two, three episodes there, but that was a few years ago. Is this episode in any way different than a non-movie episode? Um. I would have to say, like, do you think the other... they like, like, did they just pick this one at random and say this one is the movie? So I think the fact that there's a helicopter and a boat, I think that's where yes. they spent the money on. Okay. I would also say that I think the goal here was to put as much acrobatics and fight in this episode and have as little plot as possible in this episode. Success. It it, it feels it feels weird to say. But nearly every other episode we've watched has been slightly more densely plotted than this. Yeah. Spider-Man is not a narrative-heavy show. No. I would say of 24 minutes on any given week, roughly 7 to 11 of those minutes are just Spider-Man fighting Ninders while the Spider-Man theme song plays in the background. (laughs) Oh, that is something. Like, the fact that the theme song plays every time he's Spider-Man, that is 100% on brand for this show. Okay. It did not invest in any other music. (laughs) Nope. Except for this week, apparently, when it bought the Batman theme without telling anybody. (laughs) Wow. I mean, listen, I I still have a full page of notes on the episode. Like, oh, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, there's there's definitely stuff to dive into. So here's a weird note on the production quality. The actual swinging and acrobatics were a smidge above average. Okay. Because usually Spider-Man swinging looks like he was standing on a platform one foot off of the ground. And this time his swings looked like he was maybe five feet off of the ground when he jumped. Yeah. All right. So it's a little higher. <laughs> this week's episode opened in a little box. And my initial notes are a bit confused because I said, I think Spider-Man's in an air vent. That's right. also what is in my notes. Yep. And then, too. wait a minute, maybe he's in an elevator. Totally possible. Right. My notes were then, wait, was there an episode that we were supposed to watch before this? <laughs> it really yeah. does seem like it's coming in off a cliffhanger. I, I like to imagine that knowing this is the one that was going to play in theaters, the writers decided they were going to go in hot. Yeah. Because usually Spider-Man, the television show, opens with Spider-Man's girlfriend, Hitomi, complaining that Takoya is a bad boyfriend. Right. He is a bad boyfriend. Let he us be clear. He's a bad boyfriend. He's he's kind of the worst. Well, I mean, he's very oh. busy. He's got responsibilities and power. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Mostly what he wants to do is ride his motocross bicycle. Right. In, I mean, in that's this... a responsibility. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, kind of. In this world, his girlfriend is uh, the reporter at The Weekly Woman. And he apparently... I guess makes money driving motocross. That seems to be 
implied at times. It has never been made explicit. Right. Like, like they say that he is a professional motocross racer, but they never right. actually show you doing a show him doing a thing that could make money. Correct. There, there is only one motorcycle in all of Japan, and Takoya rides it around alone in a dirt field most of the time. <laughs> yes. It does inexplicably look like Spider-Man on the front. It's true. Um, so we open in what turns out to be a Spider-Man trap. But it also turns and, out to be a dream. Yes. Which, Spider-Man is trapped in a box, and then he's falling down into the darkness. Now, the when you roof, say he's I falling is, into the darkness, do you mean he's lying on a dark floor while the camera pans <laughs> away from him quickly? Yes. Maybe. And if you watch closely while he's waving his arms, you can see the velvet rippling underneath him. <laughs> It's oh, great. Yeah. And then Takoya is awake in his bed. Well, wait, is his bed this like wicker lounge chair in his yard? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. He did wake up in the wicker lounge chair. Yeah. yeah. He was just like taking an out that outdoor we, nap. We have never seen him take an outdoor nap in this lawn chair before. I don't even know whose yeah. yard this is yeah no that's uh that's that's also true it kind of is in keeping with his character though because takoya does like to take himself a rest he does it so seems when you say un- he's he's too busy to hang out with his girlfriend that's like 64 like maybe 50 percent spider-man stuff 30 percent uh dirt bike stuff and 20 percent nap stuff I think the Spider-Man stuff is probably high there. Yeah, I would say switch dirt bike and Spider-Man got the percentages just about right. Yeah. Yeah. But he's taking a nap during the daytime. As the series progresses, he is spending a little more time as Spider-Man. But really, his heart is in the dirt biking. (laughs) I mean, I get it. (laughs) So he wakes up from one nightmare to find himself in the middle of a living nightmare. Because his sister Shinko and his brother Takuji have been kidnapped by the ninjas, like, around the corner. <laughs> right. Okay, so these are both siblings. Yes. Yes. They, yeah. There there are three characters who get a whole lot of short shrift here who actually are more important in the show. It's uh, sister Shinko, brother Takuji, and his girlfriend is Hitomi. Right, and they are usually a pretty solid supporting cast. In this episode, they are kidnapped, and we don't see them again till the end. Yes. But listen, we've got to spend more time hopping. bit in the middle. Yes. That's true. That's true. They don't get to do much. It's it's more of a commercial, but we'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Takuji, the youngest brother, the seven-year-old is actually taken at this juncture. Spider-Man runs in to try to help. He saves his sister Shinko, but Takuji is taken. And he goes chasing. And anytime Spider-Man chases anyone anywhere, the first thing he does is slowly climb up the side of a building. So slowly. Shockingly slowly. (laughs) He's a very safety-conscious Spider-Man. And they keep the camera on him for so long. Yep. Like, they don't slow watch him slowly walk up part of a building. They slowly <laughs> watch him crawl up 
all of a building. Like, multiple camera angles. This shot took them a while. It was probably a decent part of their budget. That's how this show works. You see Spider-Man do maybe three interesting things an episode, but you see each of those things for three to five minutes from as many camera (laughs) angles as you can imagine. So he gets he he finally gets to the top of the building as yep. the uh people have been I I guess the the what are they called uh ninjers ninders ninders and yeah ninders the ninders have been taking a very slow saunter up the steps uh they <laughs> finally get to the roof just as he uh, gets there and they have a fight Is this fight more or less exciting than the normal fights This is short. This rooftop fight is short, but it is very indicative of the way Spider-Man fights work. The later one is a better example, maybe. But the way they sort of express action is very strange, but I really like it. And it shares some things in common with Batman 66, which is to say they do shortcut camera work to kind of represent things hopping around or jumping or even teleporting. And they do these very quick shortcuts, and they're very harsh. So they're not trying to make it seamless. They want those sudden jumps to sort of be a visual representation of action. Uh-huh. And it's weird, but I have found that I really quite like it. It's a, it, it has somehow endeared itself to me. I do like it. It's a little bit of a whiplash coming off of, like, mid-90s Super Sentai. Sure, yeah. Because, like, you know, that is in the same genre, but 20 years more refined. And so watching a bunch of Car Ranger and then watching this, like, I see what they're doing and there's a lot to it that I like. But on the other hand, like, it's just a little, it's a little, like, slow and a little jumpy all at the same time. It gets disjointed. I think you can tell there's episodes where they clearly have a better choreography director and episodes where they don't because some of the fights using this particular sort of camera trick gets very disjointed and almost makes you dizzy. But when they do it well, it's fun. And the Ninders specifically are very acrobatic. And I don't know if that was a visual choice because Spider-Man is in theory, a very acrobatic hero, but the Ninders do a lot of like cheerleader pyramid style things and leaping from each other's shoulders and like fastball specials. They are a very acrobatic putty. Is there ever an explanation as to why their face looks the way that it does? You mean with kind of the bird beak thing going on? Yeah, the bird beak thing going on. Nope. Not yet. Not not at this point. Well, if it hasn't come up yet, it probably won't. (laughs) The long and short of this fight, and this one is pretty short, Spider-Man does manage to drive away the Ninders, but he does not recover his brother. Well, I, so he, I, I'm, he still, just, I, I'm still unclear that his brother got kidnapped here. Cause I, I, I don't think that he did. I, well, okay, here, here is what I will say. We Do you mind if I spoil a scene a little later in the episode? No, my goodness, please do. Okay, there, we are going to see a scene a little later in the episode where it looks like the brother, uh, sister, and girlfriend are all having a grand old time just, like, chilling together. So I, I have to assume that he must either saved him here or saved him before. 
Okay, so maybe he saved him shortly after he saved the sister. Yeah. Because he, he takes a casual stroll home, but when he gets home, very clearly only expects to see his sister there. He's only yelling his sister's name, which is why I thought the brother was still well, he's, missing. He's yelling that because he wants her to pick up the phone because he's not a phone <laughs> picking up guy. Yeah. Oh, there was, there was another guy on the roof. Well, not on that roof. There was a guy on a roof after the Ninder fight. He was, like, looking across the, like, from a different building ominously. We don't get much from him here. A very Dick Tracy-style camera shot here. So, Spider-Man, Takoya, does go home. He does yell for his sister to answer the phone because, Matt, I know you've been living in the 90s for a while. The 90s are not great on this. But let me tell you, in the 70s, Super Sentai, sexism is real alive and well. Oh, boy. So, so good. So great. So, so, (laughs) welcome back. (laughs) You monsters. Uh, Oh, man, I have to tell you. So, I mentioned that I saw Mustard Plug and Five Iron play together. Uh Uh-huh. And the lead singer of Mustard Plug, as he was kind of introducing the show, said, the last time we played a show with Five Iron Frenzy was back in the late 90s on what is within within the community, the very famous Scott Against Racism tour. Okay. It was a big deal at the time. And he said, I have to tell you guys, back then, I had really hoped we would have racism settled <laughs> by the time we reached 2019. Oh, but racism's having a real comeback right now. It's, and it's it was, cool. We're just lulling it into a false sense of security. <laughs> yeah. It was a good joke, but a very, very depressing joke. Well, it's 2019. Those are thick on the ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so unfortunately, a woman is not home to answer the telephone. So poor Takoya, to, yeah, poor Takoya has to actually pick up the actual telephone receiver on his own and put it to his own actual ear. He has to talk into it with his own human mouth? He yep. does. It's a real pain. What is and- a bigger pain is the guy on the other end says, hey, um, so we've kidnapped your brother, sister, and girlfriend. Please come to the hotel. <laughs> yeah. he, he doesn't say take them to, like, come to a hotel or meet me at a agreed upon location. He says, I did not write down the name, but essentially he says, like, Come to the fabulous hotel at this address with this name. <laughs> Room 803 sure or whatever. And it really is like, I know that there's going to be a helicopter in this episode, and I feel like the hotel paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he hops in the GP7. Right. Which, all joking aside, the vehicles in this show are fantastic, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, super cool. I love the GP7. I love Marveler. As little as it gets used, Leopardon is fantastic. It's it's real good stuff. So he hops in the GP7. He takes off, kind of talking to himself. The announcer shows up and says, Spider-Man knows this is a trap. Right. I love this announcer. His use is so inconsistent episode to episode. You never know when the announcer's going to pop in. Sometimes you forget there is an announcer. Sometimes they clearly didn't have any plot, and the announcer does all of the heavy lifting. So there's just a bunch of fights, and then in between, the guy will say, like, and then Spider-Man realized he was in love. Absolutely. This guy exists to plot spackle anything that needs spackled. 
Yes. It feels like when you listen to the old superhero radio serials and the announcer is definitely carrying the plot water, it feels like that some episodes. Okay. And he's got a good announcer voice. I like this guy a lot. Yeah. And he explains that Spider-Man knows he's going into a trap, but, you know, what's he going to do? It's his family. He's got to go get him. He's got to get in his car, his Spider-Man car, drive his Spider-Man self over there, and then crawl up and down the building (laughs) at least twice for five minutes. (laughs) This is where we meet. Was it? I can't remember. I should have wrote the guy's name down. I call him Interpol in my notes. This is where we meet an Interpol agent who's going to be with us, I think, for the next, a little bit of a story arc. Yeah, the next uh, couple episodes, apparently, which oh, means really? unlike, yeah, unlike the other episodes of you know the Sentai programs where the movie is kind of a one-off, this introduces a character and, frankly, a plot development that I think we would be side uh, blindsided if we had not known about it going into episode 11. Uh, Brian, did you write this guy's name down? Because I also have him listed in my notes exclusively as Interpol with a capital I. The The name is uh, M-A-M-I-Y-A. So Mamia? But, Mamaya, probably. Yeah, Mamaya. It Mamia, makes more sense, though, to refer to him as Interpol because, man, there was... There was a time where you just use Interpol as the stand-in for basically global police force. Oh, sure. Yeah. Banshee was and, an uh, agent. Yeah. I forgot Banshee worked for Interpol. That was in his pre-X-Men but, days. Right. Yep. Mm. So this yeah. is Mamiya Juzo, who works for Interpol Intelligence Department a secret agency, a special secret arm of Interpol specifically dedicated to fighting Iron Cross Army. Right. What's uh, what's funny about the Iron Cross Army is that I went to abbreviate it in my notes, and so I wrote down ICA, mm. uh, which is the same acronym of the Intermuseum Conservation Association, a nonprofit <laughs> art conservation lab where I used to work. Oh. And so every time I wrote him, like, nice. the dastardly ICA has done this. I'm like, actually, no, they did really good work. <laughs> yeah, the Iron Cross Army, I really enjoy as a mastermind bad guy organization. They're real fun. Yeah. So I also particularly like, and this happens, obviously, in some Sentai programs, the fact that the normal, non- Sentai world is aware of the bad guys and are doing their own thing to combat it. Yes, I really liked that. Oh, oh, by the way, uh, you may be wondering, hey, if this guy's an Interpol agent, then why has he kidnapped Spider-Man's family and girlfriend? (laughs) And that's a valid question. And Spider-Man himself asks it. And the answer that Interpol gives him is that like, oh... Yeah, I 100% lied to you. They're fine. They're actually here at the wonderful, fabulous hotel. Let's cut away to them enjoying our wonderful facilities. And it's just like <laughs> them swimming and enjoying water slides for a minute. Right. I To me, the biggest question I have here is... Uh, there's a couple. One, why did they send a message to, apparently, Spider-Man's girlfriend, Hitomi, that said, Hey... Interpol would like to sponsor you uh, to have, like, a pool day. 
And two, why does Hitomi, who is a reporter, think, yeah, Interpol, yeah, they just let people have, like, pool vacations all the time. That's what they do while they're fighting crime. Just like, yeah, sure, free pool day from Interpol. Wait, Brian, are you telling me you've never gotten a free pool day from Interpol? Yeah, no, I have not. I mean, back back in the 90s, we used to call it Interpol. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was the yeah. special program was... that they ran. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe you lived in a little more of a rural area. I, I, I did. There wasn't as much crime and therefore pool weekends. Uh, well, you know, that's... You know, you, you do have to deal with the crime when you live closer to an urban center, but you, but Interpol does send you to the pool all the time. It's a really nice community <laughs> okay. program. Here is my question. Is this the same water park that we have encountered in other Sentai programs? Um, it is not the same hotel that they, it's not the same hotel pool that they went to in Die Ranger. I know that. Okay. And they're not at the Rindo Lake Family Fun, Family Family. F- that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole A. I can't say it apparently. Rindo Lake Family Fun Farm. That's like out in the country a little bit. Okay, okay. But they are just we we have a sort of extended minute, presumably yeah. as Matt says, to pay for the helicopter, where we just watch them going down some water so- slides and playing some splash and eating some delicious watermelon and thanking our friends at Interpol. Yeah. And then that is the last we see of them for the rest of the episode. Uh, we're we're done with all the family stuff. I mean, they're busy on the slides. That's true. Interpol got them the pool pass, and they are not going to waste it. Right. Uh, now we learn that Interpol has set up all of this, including but possibly tipping off the Iron Cross army as to Spider-Man's location. So that they can somehow sort out Spider-Man's secret identity? I am still very unclear as to how they learned this. I think they already, like, they had a 99%, like, I'm pretty sure we know who Spider-Man is. Let's put his family in danger to confirm, okay, yeah, this guy's Spider-Man. Yeah, it's like they knew which building Spider-Man lived in. So they're like, well, if we just tell the Ninders to go to that building then Spider-Man will come out and save whoever is in trouble, and then we can continue to watch him and figure out who he is. Why the Iron Cross Army has never thought of doing this, I don't know. The Iron Cross Army has been tantalizingly close to figuring out Spider-Man's identity, like 12 times. Not only that, uh, the Amazonist secretly doubles as the editor-in-chief at the Weekly Woman, where Spider-Man's girlfriend Hitomi works. So, so she's like evil J. Jonah Jameson? Pretty much, yes. Yes. Uh, but for whatever reason, despite the fact that they managed to place people everywhere around Spider-Man, they still have not figured out who he is. Interpol, on the other hand, I mean, sure, they're putting random civilians in danger. You have to assume that, like, this Ninder attack was the fifth one they had set up. So there have been, like, five, six people kidnapped by Ninders, and like, well, I guess... I guess they weren't Spider-Man's relatives. No, trial and error. It's very important. Maybe that's how they figured it out. They just took a roster of everyone who lives in Tokyo and started kidnapping. That's the the pool day. (laughs) Yeah. And Uh, no one's going to be angry if it was wrong because they just got a free day at the water park. True. Okay. That's, That's how Interpol patches things up. It is kind of nice, I think, that Interpol is good at their jobs. 
It is. It's it is always refreshing in a show like this to have like an organization that is not completely just bumbling. Right. Yeah, it's it's I don't know how much Interpol we'll get to see. I know there will be a little arc here. Yeah, I'm well, at least with this it. character, I presume that unless they destroy Interpol, like even if this character isn't around, there will just be more Interpol. Yeah. Anyway, we spent a lot of talk about Interpol. Well, most of the I rest guess... of the episode is climbing and fighting, so... that's Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Like, this little plot drop here of, hey, we know who you are, Spider-Man. Would you like to work with Interpol? That is pretty much the only plot development that happens for the rest of the episode. No, no, there's a street shark who can spit missiles. Well, that's, that's 100% not true. development. <laughs> That is plot for days. I will watch 17 <laughs> episodes about this show. Uh, okay. So while they're having this conversation, Spider-Man's spider senses go off. And the Ninders have figured out where they are. There's a crowd of them. The Ninders always travel in packs, by the way, Matt. And they travel exactly the opposite of Stormtroopers. They never, ever travel single file. They seem to fan out as wide as they can possibly get. Okay. And generally, yeah. generally, they travel like the jets in West Side Story. Okay. <laughs> I, I, so I, they're all kind of like three-quarter hunched with an arm swung out as though it's about to start snapping to the beat. Well, I guess that's to get him on the same level as Spider-Man, who also always runs around three-quarters hunched. Yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. This many episodes in, I still can't figure out why they chose that other than to say, well, because of how this show is going to have to work, we're actually going to have to do a lot of Spider-Man running. How can we make Spider-Man running look different than normal running? And then they're like, what if you hunch over and sort of almost kind of side run everywhere? And then they're like, why would you do that? That's insane. Well, we've already shot 50 hours of us doing it that way. Well, so I, I mean, guess it's, it's kind of the same, like, posture that he has sometimes if he's, like, on a ledge hunched over. Yeah. I think they it's just, like... It's supposed to look like sneaking. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't, but it's supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't because they they shoot him doing it, like, running through the center of a park. So, speaking yeah. of him supposed to have been sneaking but not doing it, I like that you say, like, somehow the Ninders have found them. When Spider-Man transformed into <laughs> Spider-Man, got in his Spider-Man car, drove to this, <laughs> this hotel, and walked up and down the side of the building slowly for five minutes. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it was 1978, so not everyone would have detected him immediately. But, like, he could have just gotten on his dirt bike and ridden over as a dude. It would have been, I mean, I guess the episode wouldn't have moved along any quicker, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. So Spider-Man goes out to fight the Ninders. He tells Interpol to stay put for a minute. Yep. But Interpol gets smoke bombed and I think falls down an elevator shaft onto yeah. some uh, bull nets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really thought that that was going to be like a quick end to that Interpol character because <laughs> he falls a long way down that elevator shaft before he gets caught in the net. Yeah, he sure does. And what they're going to do is take him to a boat parked just offshore, where they're going to slowly interrogate him. To try to figure out who Spider-Man is. Because somehow they have figured out that he knows who Spider-Man is. I don't know who made that leap in logic. 
Also, we discover Professor Monster. Yeah, that's you. Yeah. Also, we discover that apparently the Iron Cross Army is responsible for all trouble in the Middle East. Yeah, because they've just been blowing up tankers at the that's height of the Interpol oil crisis. Tell Spider Man, like, hey, I'm sorry we had to kidnap your family, but we need you. We see on the news that you're fighting the Iron Cross Army, and Iron Cross has spent the last several years blowing up all of the oil freighters. Never mind that Iron Cross has only been here at this point for like three weeks yeah. in terms of showtime. Yeah, what 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 I like about this is that it it like you were saying before, like people other than Spider Man are doing something to fight the Iron Cross army. Yes. I also like that this means that like this is happening outside of like Tokyo. It is happening all over yeah. the world and like we're only seeing what's happening in Tokyo because that's where Spider Man is. But, uh, like, this sort of opens up the world a little bit, and I always really love that. And while Spider-Man is clearly a priority for the Iron Cross army, they are not here to destroy Spider-Man. They're right. here to take over the world, and destroying Spider-Man is just a thing they need to do along the way. They've got other world-taking-over endeavors going on elsewhere. With this shark spits torpedoes. Yeah, let's get into that. So, what this plan is... We get a quick minute from Professor Monster, who is the leader of the Iron Cross Army. He's standing up in his, either his orbital satellite space base or his secret cave in Tokyo base. The show never seems clear on where it is actually located. I'm, I'm hoping, nice. yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that when the final showdown takes place, we finally clear up where this stupid base is. Because they walk into a cave in Tokyo to get there, but very definitely appear to be orbiting outer space. Transmit portals. Yeah, you, you just put your portal in a cave and then there you go. Yeah. So Professor Monster pops up. He, he gets pretty short shrift in this episode, although yeah. he's often pretty peripheral to the actual plot. Yeah, honestly, the Amazonist is usually the one having to deal with all of the stuff personally. Well, yeah, she's way better. I feel like that makes sense, especially this early in the season. Like, yeah. if, it, yeah. if it follows a Sentai formula, as I know it does, or, I mean, if it, if it follows the Sentai formula that I'm used to from, like, 20 years after this then you don't get as much of the main guy until the second half of the series. Like, the front half of the series, you're dealing a lot right. more with yeah. the, the sort of high-level henchmen. So, Professor Monster shows up, and he says, we've got a couple of objectives here, gang. We need to get this Interpol guy to tell us who Spider-Man is. We need to kill the Spider-Man. Sure. Because, right? you know, he's here now. Let's do that. Yep. So let's let's take advantage of those two objectives. Let's use the Interpol guy to set a trap for Spider-Man. So that either we can find out who Spider-Man is or perhaps just kill him right here on the boat. Because the rest of this episode is going to take place on a boat. Yep. This is what we spent the money on, guys. This in the helicopter. So they're trying to figure out, like, okay, so Spider-Man's going to be coming at the boat. Oh, also Spider-Man's, uh, not Spider-Man, Dr. Professor, Professor, Dr. Professor Monster? Just Professor, Professor Monster. <laughs> Professor Monster says, we will catch him. He will be like a mouse in a bag. And I thought, that's a weird way to phrase that. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that down as well, because that was not a phrase that I was familiar with. <laughs> um. Okay, so Spider-Man's a mouse in a bag. Everyone's on a boat. Uh, oh, so Amazon is, is walking around with the Nenders and says, like, okay, well, I've got these electrified nets underneath the boat in case he tries to, like, 
swim up underneath us. So just test that those are down there. So they shoot them with machine guns and they explode. And I guess that's testing <laughs> that they're there. Yeah. I don't. I, I don't really understand evil traps. I'm not a. I'm not. I'm <laughs> not. Please an evil destroy trap these genius. things to ensure that they are working. Yeah. I. I. I mean. Yeah. I mean. Look. Just. There's a lot of gunfire at the water. Whether or not Spider-Man is there. Just at a certain point, everyone's just shooting at the water. That's that's going to go on intermittently for the next five minutes or so. Yeah, I mean, they know he's yeah. got to come from either the land or, I'm sorry, either the sea or the air. So they're just yeah. going to shoot, and they can't see what's under the water. So they're going to look up at the sky and just randomly shoot under the water in hopes of hitting something. This is a quote that I wrote down, because at one point the Amazonist, when she first arrives at the boat to do her torture, she says, Spider-Man will definitely come by sea. Yeah. Well, there she, you go. I mean... Maybe Which she... is one of my favorite things ever said about Spider-Man in the history of Spider-Man. Well, how else could <laughs> he possibly come? Yeah, famously arriving by sea. Right. You know, you you put the you put a couple lanterns in the old North Church. Sure, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the torture of Interpol goes nowhere. Right. Mostly all. because they matter. don't torture him. No. They, they threaten to torture yeah. him and then do like a we're going to blow up Alderaan minute. Right. Where Alderaan, for better or for worse, is just a large industrial park. So yeah. It's, yeah. It's not we're going to threaten a bunch of civilians. We're going to threaten this industrial district. Not, like, you're half a mile from Tokyo. Threaten yeah. Tokyo. <laughs> like, no, I, uh, I, I feel like for whatever reason, Sea Devil, who is the sea shark, is really yep. focused on using his torpedoes to blow up oil. And it looks yeah. sort of like an oil facility. Oh, that, yeah, good, yes. So, it, but instead of it being a Death Star and then having a giant laser, they, it's just like there's a portal in this room on this like freighter that they're on. So they just punch out the window of the portal, and <laughs> Sea Devil just shoves his face out the hole, and it's like, <laughs> I will spit a torpedo at those people. Right. Do not, like, do not test me. I will do it. I'm crazy. Yeah, I'm crazy I for just, it. I love torpedoes. Try me. <laughs> I love the implication that this shark has the ability to naturally manufacture a torpedo within his digestive system basically every five seconds. That's amazing. Yeah. One one thing I will say, um, and this is because, you know, Spider-Man, I, I think it precedes or is simultaneous with the earliest Power Ranger shows, correct? Like, um, yeah, so there would have been Go Ranger and Jacu before Spider-Man. Okay. And then Spider-Man came out, and then after Spider-Man, I think it was Battle Fever J, and that's when you get in, that's when you start having what was originally designated as Super Sentai as opposed to Sentai, because right. Super Sentai uh, indicated that there was a giant robot involved, which there gotcha. were not in Go Ranger or Jacu. Spider-Man was actually the first of these shows that had a giant robot. Right. But that said, Spider-Man also gives a very, very short shrift to kind of all of these individual monsters of the week. Like, this show will follow a... St early on, they seem to at least give us the names of those things early in the episode. But this episode has been more typical of what we've seen recently of, yeah, we'll eventually name this guy. I think we did name him, like, midway through but he's kind of disposable, which is a shame because uh, Sea Devil, 
the shark that shoots torpedoes out of his mouth is great. I love everything yeah, about Sea Devil. I was thinking outside of like lieutenants. Yeah. You know, or the really cool monsters of the week that get multiple episodes. Right. I feel like Sea Devil would come in fairly high on the Creature Royale if we were yeah. putting, at least in terms of Spider-Man, he's far and away the best Spider-Man guy we've got yet. Yeah, I mean, listen, oh, yeah. he's a walking shark man that spits torpedoes. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. That's perfect. Yeah, That's a, a walk- perfect he, idea. Not only does he spit torpedoes, he is very clearly living his best life. Yeah. Yes. Sea Devil is, this is the job that he was born for. He is following his bliss. You, sea Devil is living the Sea Devil life. You, you feel that even if he didn't work for the Iron Cross army, he'd be blowing up tankers in the Strait right. of Hormuz. Yeah. Sure, sure. He would do this even if they weren't paying him. Hey, yep. listen, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Spider-Man is, in fact, arriving by sea, right. making as much noise and being as visible as a man could possibly be <laughs> while swimming in a blue and red jumpsuit. Well, everyone was distracted because Spider-Man was also, for a brief second, coming by air? Yeah. Because yeah, that apparently... was a weird <laughs> Apparently, uh, Spider-Man just had Marveler fly over and uh, is the gp7 whatever just fly over and drop like a spider-man dummy with a parachute that definitely <laughs> got shot up i i don't know how the dummy jumped out of the sky i'm not clear on that i'm not clear of how the dummy pulled the parachute but it managed to do all that i presume gp7 just has like a spring-loaded ejector seat okay I don't know how he got the parachute pulled, but I figure it just launched him out of there. It was so good. (laughs) This ridiculous looking ragdoll Spider-Man hits the deck. Yeah. And for reasons that I don't understand, despite the fact that the Ninders 100% identify that that was not Spider-Man, they go on the rest of their day deciding... That wasn't Spider-Man, but I'm going to say we killed Spider-Man anyway. Because that is the only possible explanation for when the Amazonist shouts, Spider-Man's not dead? It's like, no, he 100% isn't dead. You were aware of that. Right. It's like somebody ran down into the room and said, like, hey, great news. Spider-Man's dead. And then they ran back up to the deck and like, oh, no, bad news, buddy. Spider-Man is not dead. And that guy is just waiting outside of Amazonus' room, trying to, like, get up the gumption to walk back in and be like, okay, let's backpedal on this. Quick update. <laughs> like, he just can't face his boss to give the bad news. And so Amazonus only ever got that first piece of information. <laughs> and the Ninders are just running all over the ship, like, if we can kill him fast, then we don't have to tell her. <laughs> Spider-Man, actual Spider-Man, is climbing up the side of the ship now. Yep. There, there is a bit where they shoot at the water, and he was in oh, the yeah, water, that's right. but they don't kill him because he was hiding under a log. A log a that very is not... Narrow yeah, log. A, he, I can only imagine that he just went sideways so that he had the smallest <laughs> profile. I don't even know how you swim like that. I'm not clear that it's possible. I mean, but, you, you know, spider spider powers. Man. He has got all that's sorts true. of things. Yeah, spiders well known for their swimming. 
Especially if they're sideways <laughs> swimming. Yeah. Well, that's why he and Dr. Octopus are such natural foes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, all, it all brings it around. He, uh, he climbs up the side of the boat while what is, to my ears, very clearly the 66 Batman theme song playing. I mean, it's a half a step away. Like, they did what they needed to do to make it legally acceptable. But uh, he's climbing up the side of the boat while the music is going na 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 Yeah. I presume what they did to make it legally acceptable was it was 1978, so there was no way an American company would hear this three-second riff on a Japanese Spider-Man show. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's probably fair. true. And that's basically it. Like, we're done now. We're done now. He's going to throw Interpol on a speedboat and take him away. Yep. He's going to okay. climb all over a helicopter for, I think, two hours. There, there's there's <laughs> a bit that I want to mention, though, before we leave the boat, where he's crawling all over the boat. He's up. He's down. He's behind a smokestack. He's in front of a smokestack. They can't sure. find him. They're looking. <laughs> he's sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. And then he s- jumps off of a smokestack and lands on the ground and takes one step and steps directly onto an alarm. <laughs> I forgot about that. I, I have to wonder, like, that particular alarm, because it really just looks like someone put a button on the ground and said, yeah, someone steps on this. That is definitely 100% the Spider-Man is here alarm. Why? It's on the ground. Anyone could walk over it. Impossible to know. Yeah. Yeah. After the sneaking and the fighting, some more sneaking, some acrobatic fighting, Spider-Man throws Interpol on a speedboat, gets him out of there, and then, as Brian points out, climbs onto a helicopter just, I think, to play for a little well, it, they're they're doing the north by. You get to hang on the the feet of a helicopter. Yeah, well, it starts because they're doing a north by northwest with that helicopter, that is apparently firing explosive bullets. Yeah, the well, the yep. explosions that are going off to like real human actor in that scene <laughs> seem way too big to be that close. <laughs> right. Yeah. I I can't tell if it was just. No safety approved, or they just gave that guy the wrong diagram for where he needed to run, or maybe he's about a step behind how fast he needs to be going. Cause, yeah, that's, there are definitely some OSHA violations going on. And again, this is another one of those weird differences between 1978 Spider-Man and 1996 Car Ranger, which is that, like, there are definitely explosions that happen, like, near and next to the Car Rangers in Sentai, right? Right. Sure. But the version of explosion in, like, those later Sentai shows that I'm more familiar with is much more like stage pyrotechnics. These okay. just look like bombs. <laughs> yeah, they really do. It feels very unsafe when you're watching Spider-Man. And again, you know, 1978. I get it. Right. Yeah. Sure. I I mean, and despite the fact that you will spend the next four hours on that helicopter, <laughs> does it feel, does it feel After, like... After, to be clear, evading the explosive bullets of the helicopter by running serpentine. <laughs> yes. Uh, running serpentine is what Spider-Man does best. Uh, <laughs> does it feel like a lot of those shots of the man in the Spider-Man suit 
the audio isn't there, but you can hear him screaming like, I don't want to be holding on to the helicopter like this. <laughs> like, you get a very real sense that the stuntman is not comfortable with being on the helicopter like this. Yeah, it just it's a, it is a good thing that you cannot see the expression on his face. Yes, yes. And now we end it the way we end every episode of Spider-Man, which is a real quick jump into Leopardon, who blows up the bad guy. Right. Arc turns, sword vigor, bad guy dies. Okay. Yep. Do want to quick point out, when he does sword vigor, which I forgot was just him throwing his sword. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it does go like, uh, Sea Devil, I think, is rearing up to spit another torpedo. And yep. uh, Leopardon just throws the sword straight into his mouth. Yeah, it's kind of great. Yeah. A thing I did not know that Brian informed me of is basically at some point early on in Spider-Man, they lost the Leopardon. Like somebody just flat out stole it or something. Yeah, Leopardon was... So the only variance you ever get to Leopardon is the way in which the sword strikes the enemy. Because they only have like three shots of Leopardon throwing the sword and then they lost Leopardon. Which is is also why... Yeah, which is also why I think throughout the entire series, like, all fights pretty much end Arctorn Sword Vigor Leopardon wins. I don't think there is going to be a, oh, well, you know, here's a new enemy and we'll have to level Leopardon up. No, they lost the suit, so there was no way to do that kind of thing. <laughs> so as soon as the monster get giant, the monster is going to die in the next two hits. I wonder if that has, like, if that weird bit of trivia has had a like super lasting effect because forever after this in all mm-hmm. super sentai shows it like the dude has a finishing move and that finishing move finishes the monster and that's just what happens every week they you it's know they point. level up the robots and they get different finishing moves but the basic structure right. never changes and i do have to wonder a little bit if that's because it was so cemented in like <laughs> this where they just didn't have another option. Yeah. Cause it's, it's funny. Cause I think we're just about out of episodes where there's newly apart on footage. Cause there <laughs> used to be other things, but for the most part, every single fight arc turn sword vigor done. And maybe you're right, Matt. Maybe they just found like, Oh, this works. This is a nice way to get out of the episode. Yeah. And there's a little tiny bit at the end where Interpol and Spider-Man are friends. Yep. The announcer comes on to kind of tell us that they're going to be working together for a bit. Yeah. The announcer always gets us out of the episode. I like that. I look forward to the announcer now because I just, I like his voice. It's fun. It's a nice way to kind of cap the episode. Did did you also notice the fact that like everything in this universe, it's all super, super dark when you read it? Oh, yeah. Oh, the, you, uh, you mean the bit about the, how the announcer says that Spider-Man will never find rest until he dies or destroys the Iron Cross army? Yeah, yeah. He yeah. will never find peace except for his death or destruction of the Iron Cross army. And that, that is the narrative tenor of your show. You're right, Brian. That yeah. sort of dialogue is dropped all the time. Right. By this well, even the theme song, the theme song is great. And uh, also the closing theme song it does repeatedly ask, like, dude, Spider-Man, why are you doing this? Like, this is, is this actually worth your life? Yeah. I mean, let's the- not forget that Spider-Man refers to himself as an emissary from hell. Yep. In, in this episode, this week- yeah, he, he jumps through a window and then says, it is I, the Iron Cross Army killer, Spider-Man. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, this, this is basically, this world is Spider-Man driven purely by vengeance. Yep. That's it, guys. We have made it to the end of the episode. We have. Yeah, this is going to do it for another episode of The Spider-Man Who Loved Me. As we finish up here, we will remind you, you can email the show at supersentibrothers at gmail.com. If you want to get any updates on future episodes, if you want to check out the other things that we are up to, if you want to reach out to Matt J, we're on Twitter at Super Sentai Bros. You can find all of the other cool stuff that we do here at Retrograde Orbit Radio on our website, www.retrogradeorbitradio.com. Again, we are the Super Sentai Buddies. I'm Mark. I'm Brian. I'm Matt. And we will see you next week for the greatest show on Earth. Spider-Man. Spider-Man.